Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are back again with Back to Basics with none other than Dr. D. Miles Golfin. Listen, it's been a joy. This is our 13th session. We're going to the next level again. So listen, I want everybody to get your, pep, your Bibles, get your pen and paper. We want to go ahead and engage on what our doctor is coming to bring to us today. But first of all, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for all that you've done today. Clear our minds tonight, Lord, for that we can receive what, what the man of God is bringing to the table. Father, we thank you for speaking to him. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to eat at this table. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Grace and peace to everyone this evening, and welcome to our session this evening on Back to Basics. Uh, we have been, this is as uh, Archbishop Slater shared with you, this is our 13th session that we've done. I want to begin by dealing with these questions that we have been rhetorically listing for the last six or seven weeks, but I'm going to take it a little bit further tonight on the questions. But our theme scripture has been Jude 3, where Jude uh, asked the church to earnestly contend for the faith. We've been pointing, pointing out for a few sessions now that earnestly contending for the faith is for the doctrine that the church, because faith here, the Greek word pistos is used in a noun form. So it represents the faith deals with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're dealing with the whole idea of Jesus's revelation. By the way, I'm going to uh, be joining the fall a series, two series, and I'm gonna see how I'm gonna do it on the book of Revelation, on uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna do one as a devotional, which is gonna be about worship, how um, Revelation is a book of worship. And then I wanna do a study on eschatology or the study of last things and show uh, the two aspects of the revelation of Jesus Christ and how all of this unfolded. I think it's a, a great conclusion for this. So we're gonna take this particular class up until the end of the year, but we're gonna start another classes and we'll give you the dates and times that they're gonna start in between. But I want to begin here with a few questions because while we end molding in this idea, especially in the Western church of where we are right now and what we're going to do, there are a couple of things that are taking place. There are a couple of things that are happening that pull us into this idea of what we're doing into this. And the one recovery question we keep asking, do we recover traditions? It is obvious that the church is in transition. Um, you don't have to be a prophet or seer to understand that there are some things that are happening in the church that we can't seem to understand. Is God judging us? Is he shifting us? Um, what seems to be happening? Believe it or not, we're at this place almost every 50 years. There's a, there's a transitional moment. In, in God working with the church. I think it is that the church becomes laxadadio in terms of where it is sometimes and they sort of forget God and God has to remind us. Um, we fall away from God. The book of Judges is a perfect example. What happens two or three times throughout the book of Judges, Judges, a statement is made that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so God will always have to send and deliver once they got in the bondage, take them out of bondage, they will follow God for a while, move right back into rebellion again. God will put them back in the bondage. 
and even sending deliver to come about. So these times of thirsting, do we come recover from transitions or traditions that we're going into and go back and find out what have we done in the, in the past that we need to pick up that we've lost, that we need to recover so God can find us at that place we need to do? What is, or do we repair structures? Um, there are a lot of things that we're doing. Um, do we go back to some traditional ways we are having church rather than being the church? We've been talking about that quite a bit. Do we renovate leaders? And leaders are going through all kinds of renovations. I, I see structures in church changing. People are changing the background, changing their dress code, uh, changing their structure, the way they're doing things. It's um, almost becoming showtime in the Apollo in some churches, the way they're structured. Or do we reconstruct something new altogether? People are in the process of recreating. When I, when I thought about these four questions, do we recover? Do we repair? Do we renovate? Do we reconstruct? Something powerful hit my spirit. Or do we just let God? What a powerful statement. Do we just let God? What? Do we let God be God and do whatever he wants to do in this hour? In other words, we need to stop trying to figure it out and let God work it out. That's, that's my beginning statement in terms of where we are because we're going square tonight and back to basics. I have to revisit revelation, inspiration, and illumination again, because it's so important to where we are. But let me start here. The biblical study of the doctrine of the church, Israel, and the kingdom is called ecclesiology. Ecclesia deals with the church. So, the biblical study of the doctrine, and, and here's where we are. Here are the things, things that are crystallized for these end times that we have to understand. We spent a lot of time last month talking about the nature of the church. And we concluded from the apostolic and the Nicene Creed that the church is one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. Those four units, one. It is, it is a compound oneness, like God. It is holy, it is different, it's set apart. It is Catholic in the sense that it is universal. It is um, the same message in different geographical locations, expounding the same word of God. It is apostolic because it follows the teaching of the apostles as they taught us what Jesus taught them, his life, his death, his resurrection, which is so important, the key to where we are in this hour. So the problem is, and we wrestle with this, and let's wrestle with this some more. Where is Israel, the church, and the kingdom? There are people talking about a lot of this. First of all, we talk a lot about Israel being the people of God. We also must talk about the church being the bride of Christ. And this 
concept of the kingdom, which is not earthly, God is preparing, but it's heavenly. So let's go back and start with Israel again. Israel comes from the seed of Abraham. And we really get a great understanding of this idea from Genesis 12 that God said to Abraham, in fact, we're going to cover it in Galatians 3, because I think it's, it's more powerful there. So if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, let's walk down how Paul begins to disciple this whole idea of where Israel is and how we bring these together. Galatians 3.15. Let me get back here. Because I want to I want to put together this circle, which is we have a division here between Israel, church, and kingdom. How do we synergize these things and bring it together? Galatians 3.15. I'm reading out of the New English Translation. Brothers and sisters, I offer you an example from everyday life. When a covenant has been ratified, even though it is only a human contract, no one can set it aside or add anything to it. Now, the promises, because in Israel history, we have two things that are important to the pattern we've been talking about. How God all first offers a pattern, then he gives a principle in order to move us to a purpose. We've been talking about that threefold chord, and we added some other things to it, that along with that, God offers provision. And so these things, and then, of course, there are promises. So verse 16 gives something very interesting. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his descendants. Scriptures does not say to his descendants, which is how a lot of people interpreted it. When Abraham was given the promise, he wasn't just given the promise to his seeds, his whole DNA, just those who were Jews. Does not say, scripture does not say, Genesis 12 and 3, to his descendants. So he wasn't saying that. It says, referring to many, but to your descendant, referring to one who is Christ. So when he spoke to Abraham, through Abraham, God was speaking about a descendant that would come from the line of Abraham that would be the one who was going to handle this problem in the earth of synchronizing a new race of human beings that was to come. It was first to be done, of course, in the nation of Israel. Um, of course, Abraham's grandson, who then becomes a tribe and later a nation. What I'm saying in verse 17, he says, is this. The law that came 430 years later does not counsel a covenant previously ratified by God so as to invalidate the promise. See, there are two things that hold these pillars in Israel's history. It is the covenant or promise that God gave to Abraham and is the law that Moses got on Mount Sinai. So we have a legality with the principle that we talked about and the pattern through the promise. The pattern promise had some very interesting things, beginning with creation, with Adam and Eve. Notice that Eve comes out of Adam, and he takes of the one man that he breathed into, and he makes two, male and female. And the concept of union was that the two would become 
1. Last month, and I told you to study Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. Very important. We're going to Ephesians 2, 3, and 4 because we went into detail to show how the church was going to be co-heirs with Israel. They were not to replace Israel, but they would share in the promises with Israel. So this whole thing of sharing and being joint heirs with them was to show that they were going to be joint heirs and heirs of the promises of God with Israel. The church in Israel were going to be the two joint heirs. So Israel, God's chosen people, the church, God's body, the body of Christ. The two shall become one. We begin the story of mankind with Adam and Eve. And look at the pattern. Right after the story of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, we get to Genesis 4. And we see something very interesting. We see two sons, Cain and Abel. There's another dichotomy that is presented there. Something begins to happen. Another dichotomy to Cain and Abel. Then it keeps going down. We then leave from Cain and Abel, and we see something interesting in the genealogy. We get two things that happen. We get a man who lives shorter than anybody during that period of time, his name was Enoch, and he walked with God, and God took him. And yet he had a son who lived longer than anybody on the face of the earth, Methuselah, who lived 969 years, the longest living person during that particular era before the flood. And his name means when he dies, it comes. What? Now after that, Nora is his contemporary. And the name Nora means rest. He finds grace in the eyes of God. So between the youngest living person who walked with God and the old and living, living man before the flood who carries a prophecy of an eschatological destruction of the earth. When he dies, it comes. And Nora leading us into rest. We get in this pattern in Israel. There's something that happened in the twos. So when Abraham has a son, he has two sons. He has to deal with Ishmael and Isaac. And so the, the, the whole idea of two begins to be a pattern. We get two great cities that develop. Jerusalem and Babylon. Uh, I, I hope you're hearing a pattern here that developed. Babylon begins to develop as a city of civil government being against God. And Jerusalem becomes, Salem is its Old Testament name, comes into be the city of God. Two cities. We get the Proverbs. The whole Proverbs is about this theme of two women, one wise and one foolish. Two women. Proverbs is about a wise woman and a foolish woman. That's what the whole book of Proverbs is about, the wise and the foolish woman. Look at the contrast, two, 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 good and evil, light and darkness. God's trying to tell us something. But things are coming together. And then we get here to this consummation that Israel and the church, the two shall become one. Because now the church comes into something that we call adoption. Paul points it out in Romans chapter 8. 
that we've been adopted into the royal family. So now let's see what, what he says here about this in the text. 18 again, Galatians 3.18, for if inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on the promise. God graciously gave it to Abraham through the promise. Gave what? He gave the promise through Abraham that all of the nations were going to be blessed, not just Israel. Why then was the law given? Verse 19. It was added because of transgressions, our sins, until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. This was all given so that the descendant, according to Galatians 4 and 4, that when the fullness of time has come, Christ came. So he came to fulfill everything that was going to be done. This, and look at it. It was administered through angels and by an intermediary. Now an intermediary is not for one party alone, but God is one. <laughs> Rhetorical cough, talking about his compound oneness. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Paul answers his own questions, a rhetorical question. Absolutely not. For if a law had given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything and everyone under sin so that the promise could be given because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to those who believe. Now, we get the synergy. Israel is one thing, the church is another. But we read from, from uh, Ephesians 2 last month that God's desire was to make of the two one new man. To make of the two. That's, that's the ideal thing that's going to happen. There's a diversity with this dichotomy right now. But of the one new man is, going, is ideal what God's trying to pull together between Israel and the church, making one new man. Now, now what does that mean? The church carries the message of Jesus Christ, which is a message of kingdom, that God is pulling together a whole new habitation for us, since he's making us new creatures, new identity, new thoughts. He has to give us a new habitation. So the kingdom is about something God wants to do in the future. I know we want to try to take kingdom in the present, but the, the kingdom has to do in the present, something supernatural in which we take authority over Satan and his demons. Because remember the, the whole idea of the church when we get to Ephesians 3 and 10 was that God's intent, that was that now through the church, the manifold kingdom of God is going to be manifest. Yes, Apostle, go ahead, you raise your hand. Can you unmute yourself? Bishop Slater, can you unmute us? There we are. Go ahead, Apostle Barbara. We gave you a chance to unmute yourself. You just have to take your mic off.
Here we are. I'm loud. Okay. Well, put it in the chat if you can't talk, Apostle. Amen. You can even raise your hand or um, put your question in the chat if you have a question pertaining to what I'm talking about at the time. Archbishop Slade, I made you co-host. Okay. All right, so this idea of kingdom is a whole new concept because Jesus, when he dealt with kingdom, there are two aspects of Jesus dealing with kingdom. So let me, let me explain those because if we don't get that right, we won't get kingdom right for the church and we won't get the kingdom right for Israel. I guess, let me go back and start with kingdom with Israel. Remember, uh, Israel's concept of kingdom was that God was going to, going to restore an earthly kingdom back to them, restore the glory of Israel back to the glory of David. Remember after Solomon, sons caused the kingdom to be split with civil war. And then later the kingdom is taken, the, the Southern kingdom is taken into captivity and the Northern kingdom is dispersed among the nations. Most of the prophetic utterances of restoring of coming back are given to the Southern kingdom. So the Southern kingdom of course, represents Judah and Benjamin, and they're the southern kingdom. Everything comes back along those lines. So the earthly concept of kingdom has to do with Israel getting restored back to their homeland. Now, this is all before the, the first coming of Christ. Let's not talk about today yet. Let's talk about the first coming of Christ. So the, Israel is waiting for the coming of God to send the Messiah, the one who Daniel prophesied one that was to come, who was going to restore them to their, to their earthly kingdom. They've gone through captivities, captivity with Babylon, captivity with the Persians, captivity with the Grecians, and now captivity with the Romans. And they're still under bondage. They want their kingdom. They are yearning because all of the prophets coming, yielding up to this, they kept talking and promising that one was coming, one was coming. So they were waiting for the coming of the kingdom. By the time Jesus comes, they had already rejected him as being the Messiah. Uh, John 1, 10, 11, and 12, he was in the world, the world was made by him, the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own didn't receive him. So they rejected the Messiah that God sent because he did not appear to be what they wanted. He was what they needed, but he didn't appear to be what they wanted. Isn't that apropos today? God always sends us what we need, but we have a problem because what he sends us is not always what we want. So Israel rejecting of the Messiah opened the door and Jesus then promises to build his church. So he promises to build a church. There's a coming because this God man, I'm going to deal with that later, who Jesus becomes, because the invisible reality of the Father has already carved out of people. Now we have a new creation beginning with this express image of God actually becoming a man. See, in the beginning, God breathed into a man, but in the New Testament, he actually becomes what he breathed into. He becomes a man. 
Now, if I was in church, I would get a thousand amens. So the kingdom starts being transformed under the teachings of Jesus to represent a reality that was going to tear down the invisible kingdom of Satan. Remember when I showed you the chart of, of, of the spiritual world internal in that circle, and then the physical world, and then there was another realm on the outside, the spiritual world. So Jesus comes to take charge of that kingdom, that kingdom that's full of demons, evil spirits. He takes charge in, in, in Matthew 24. Um, he talks about how organized that kingdom is. But if Satan casts out Satan, uh, his kingdom cannot stand. But let's look at um, Matthew 12 for a minute. Matthews 12, 22. So Jesus dealt with this whole concept of kingdom. Uh, in Matthews 12, 22, they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him so that he could speak and see. All the crowds were amazed and said, could this one be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said he does cast out demons, except by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So you see what, what begins to happen here. Jesus starts to bring a new concept to the, to the kingdom, a kingdom that is going to root out, have the authority to root out demons. This is, this is a whole new revelational thing. Demons start to come out because they know what his assignment is. So they're, they're coming against his teaching and the things that are happening. If I, verse 26 says, um, well, let me go to verse 25. Now, when Jesus realized that they were thinking, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed, and no town or house divided against itself will stand. Verse 26, so if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they be your judge. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. Jesus starts to transfer the kingdom of God into a spiritual reality that was going to drive out the spiritual forces of Satan. So when he stands before the Pilate and he will mock at him and says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says to Pilate, you call me a king. He said, but if my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight for me? In other words, you wouldn't have any authority to bind me like you're doing now. But my kingdom is not here. Paul sums up the kingdom this way. He said in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. In other words, the kingdom concept was not going to be a kingdom that was going to be physical but it's righteousness, it's joy, it's peace in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom message of the church is a message of authority over the spiritual realms of the devil. Now, now to put this in context, turn to Acts 1 and 1. I'm moving a little fast because I'm trying to get to something else that I really want to get to. I didn't mean to get on this bunny trail, but I, I think it's important that we, we get to this bunny trail and see where he's at. Uh, Acts 1 and uh, 4. 
while he's with them, he declared, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait there for my father's promise, which you heard about him. Um, John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, Jesus said, verse five, verse six. But when they gathered together, they began to ask him, Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? See again, they're becoming the church, but they're still going back to Israel. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he, look what Jesus said about that. You restore the kingdom to Israel. You restore the kingdom to Israel. Verse seven, he told them, you are not permitted to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Now, he didn't say God wasn't going to restore a kingdom to Israel. He just said that what I'm talking about now has nothing to do with that. God has set some things in this time and order. There's a time and place for everything. What I need you to do is understand the kingdom of God now, the kingdom that I want to present to you now, the kingdom that we see in terms of the method that was going on, is a kingdom that's going to dispel every evil demon that have gotten out of the pit since the beginning through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. We're gonna declare righteousness. Now, just in case you forgot, you may wanna to turn to Ephesians 3. You can't keep up with me, just take notes. Here's what Paul says that, that we understand about the church. He talks about in verse 9, Ephesians 3, 9, and to enlighten everyone, his Paul says, I want to do this is the revelation of the mystery of the church that I want to share with you. To enlighten everyone about God's secret plan, a secret that had been hidden the ages in God who has created all things. The purpose of this enlightenment is that through the church, the melted faucet wisdom of God should now be disclosed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. The purpose of the church is to take authority over a kingdom who has had authority over a physical world. Church has been empowered to break that spell. That's what Paul's saying. And this verse 11, according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence, access to God because of Christ's faithfulness. For this reason, I ask you not to lose heart because of what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. For this reason, I love this part, verse 14. I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that according to the wealth of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power and through his spirit in the inner person, in the inner person. So this synergy of Israel, church, and kingdom begins to synergize that God is trying to make one. In relationship of male and female, the statement is made in Genesis that the two would become one. Paul is saying about Israel in the church that the two realities will eventually become one. They're not one yet, but they're joint heirs. Israel is the son of the promise from Abraham. The church is the adopted son by faith. But the adopted son has all of the inherited rights as the natural son. 
Now, if you really want to follow this, you got to follow this in Galatians, Galatians chapter four, where, where he talks about the free woman and the bond woman. And actually, Paul changes the analogy. He doesn't make the bond woman the Arab woman, he makes the bond woman the Jews. And as I talked last month about his language in, in Ephesians 2 and 3, he talked about the we, which was Israel, and he talks about the you, who was the church, that we who are Israel, who have the blessings by the naturally, are sharing with you the blessings supernaturally, because now you are God's adopted child. But don't feel bad about being adopted, because if you read Romans 8, there's something about adoption that makes you just as much a son as the natural children. So, so Jesus, Jesus does it. Here's what Paul does even further. Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Romans chapter 2, 20, verse 28. I, I know these things just come to me as I go along. As, as, as this whole reality was coming in, Paul is trying to explain the spiritual Jew with the natural Jew. He does this in, in those Jews who are now trying to oust the Gentiles who had become a very active part of the church. Because early on, because the church started out as being uh, entirely Jewish, there were a lot of Jewish people who didn't want Gentiles to be part of the church. Just like today, there are Gentiles who don't want Israel to be part of the church. But Romans 2, 28 says this. He's trying to pull some things together. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. Romans 2.28. Verse 29. But someone is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit and not by the written code. This person's praise is not from people, but from God. What is he talking about? He's trying to show that there's a spiritual reality to the natural side. The natural side is there. We're not natural Jews, but we're spiritual Jews. And so being an adopted child does not diminish not being a natural child because it shares the same inheritance as a natural child. Israel's territorial kingdom will be a reality. Our spiritual kingdom will be a reality. I'm going to stop there because I don't have time to really deal with that because my time is almost out and I haven't got to really what I want to get to yet. So we covered this, the mystery of godliness. We're getting ready to cover the mystery of the church, the mystery of iniquity, these three mysteries that Paul talks about. First Timothy 3.16, I want you to turn there because we're going to deal with the mystery of God. The mystery of the church and the mystery of iniquity are so important. But let's, let's start here. Let's back up a minute. The Bible professes to be the written record of truths revealed by God to mankind. What we have recorded in the sacred text, in the sacred writ, is the written record of truth God has revealed. God is revealing something. He's been hiding something from us since the beginning. There was a purpose in which God stepped into the world and God said, let there be light. There was a purpose behind that statement that unfolds in the annals of scripture of what God had in mind. Now, let me give you a, a clue from Revelation 13. That which is the end of the book 
really defines for us the beginning of the book. And so what we have in the beginning really describes what is really going to end up. God is, is bringing this reality, but in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it gives us a clue. We keep getting God's purpose, God's intent, God's will throughout scripture. So Revelation 13 and 8, it says that the lamb was slain. This lamb that was slain, Jesus Christ, had already been prepared before the foundation of the world. God in his infinite wisdom, God in his omnipresence, his omniscient nature, already knew this whole plan because, of, and, and I went through this in a service uh, about a week ago, but in Genesis 1.14, he, he makes the heavens on the fourth day of creation for times and seasons. Time doesn't start until the fourth day of creation. And I, I pointed out last no, a week ago that God spoke everything into existence until he got to man. He breathed into him. He didn't speak to man, he breathed into him. He spoke to everything else. But when he got to man, he breathed. So the object of revelation is what is revealed. What is revealed? What is revealed? That God made man in his image and in his likeness. He just created everything else. But when he made man, he didn't speak him into existence. He breathed them into existence. And that means when revelation takes place, that which is revealed is a body of knowledge that formerly had not had been hidden from the receiver of knowledge. So when we receive revelation, that which is revealed is something that has been hidden from the receiver, but now it's made known. Well, well, well I've got to take you somewhere that I thought I was going to have time to really work you with that I don't. But these are the three things that, that, that connect together, just like we saw Israel, the church, and the kingdom connecting together. These come together, revelation, mystery, illumination. So you remember, revelation is something hidden in the past, which, was, which will be revealed in the present. Mystery is the object of revelation is really defining what it's going to take. A mystery is not necessarily explainable. It's just that it's there. Illumination is the enlightenment of all that you see that's going to come about and what is kept. Illumination is timely. There's a time and a season to be illuminated. Certain things God has hidden that he plans to be revealed at a certain time in a certain our atmosphere for a certain generation. There are things that we understand about the scriptures now in this generation that the former generations did not understand because God had time that certain things would be dripped into us at certain times and seasons so that we could see how this worked. So, but I want to talk about the difference between revelation and discovery because sometimes we, we miss this whole idea of revelation and discovery. And uh, I don't want to put a disparity on getting educated, but when discovery takes place, the receiver of knowledge is active. You're actively trying to discover something. You're, you're uncovering the knowledge by yourself because you're researching, you're doing the discovery. Thus discovery can involve just one person and a body of knowledge. You are discovering it because you're doing the research. Everybody discovers something now because they, they can Google it. They can ask Siri. They can go on the internet. They can ask Alexa. Everybody can discover whatever they want. 
through a process of knowledge. Revelation is different. By contrast, when revelation occurs, the receiver of knowledge is passive. You don't get revelation because you were working at it, because you studied the stars, because you studied books, because you studied background history. Revelation doesn't come like that. It is not discovery. Revelation is not discovery. You can learn a lot through discovery. That's what education gives you. It gives you a discovery process. But revelation is different. Knowledge is uncovered for the person who is receiving revelation by another. It's infused in you. You didn't learn it. You didn't discover it. You didn't research it. You just know it. There are things about God I understand now that I just happen to know. I don't know why, I just happen to know. That's because God decided to do that. So revelation always involves at least two. Remember, discovery can involve one, but revelation always involves at least two, the revealer and the receiver and a body of knowledge that the one reveals has to reveal it to the one who's receiving it, who could not get it unless the revealer gave it. In the case of divine revelation, the revealer is God and the receiver is human. The scriptures indicates two kinds of categories of divine revelation, special and general revelation. I stuck under the other word mystery that I don't have time to deal with tonight, but we'll revisit this slide next month. General revelation is basically what we have from creation. There's a general knowledge of God that we all have been akin to because we all carry the breath of God. So we have, there's this longing to discover what's been breathed into us. The problem is our discovery process is not valid. So instead of waiting for it to be revealed, we try to discover which should be revelation. That's general revelation. Special revelations that God chooses who he wants to reveal certain things to. So what Paul or Moses or Abraham, he, he selects special revelation. Some of what he selects becomes mystery. Let me explain mystery again. I keep going back here to mystery because our Western concept of mystery is a puzzle to be solved. And it doesn't, it doesn't really point out to that, even though we get a revelation, the revelation of mystery is whole entirely different. In the New Testament, the word mystery means the secret thoughts, plans, and dispensations of God, which are hidden from the human reason, as well as from all other comprehension below the divine level. And hence, must be revealed to those from whom they are intended. Must be revealed. This is so good. I could camp here for a while. Mystery explained. I could camp here. The word mystery means secret thoughts, plans, and dispensations of God, which are hidden from human reason. Friends, believers, brothers and sisters, you can't discover it. 
It just has to be infused. Or we can discover information. Or you can learn all about God. But to really know God involves revelation. I have to stop here. The timing is almost if, if I go any further, I'm, I'm going to take you some places that will take us another hour. But I want to, let, let me back up here for a minute. It's going to take us too long to get to where I thought we could go, that we're not going to be able to go. I plan more, but we'll finish that on next month. Things that will help us in terms of gathering where we are and what we're doing. I really want to ask some questions at this point and see where we are. Um, see, you, you, you follow where I'm going. I know it's revelational because I'm getting somewhere with the mystery of godliness. And that's where I want to start next month. I just don't jump right into the mystery of godliness. So please keep this tape in mind. Archbishop. All right. Thank you, Bishop. This has definitely been neat. Any questions that we want to throw before our theologian? Any questions, you can write it in the, the chat. If you want to, we'll open up. If you want to speak it, just raise your hand. We'll find you. No questions? You don't know what to ask sometimes, you know? Right. If you raise your hand, we'll unmute you. As Bishop said, or you can write your questions in the chat, and he'll read them. And we can um, we can move from there. Amen. What a I hope everybody got it. I know I know Apostle Barbara had a had a statement or question earlier. I don't know if he wanted to give it at this time. You can unmute him, Archbishop. He if he wants to talk. Apostles unmuted. You just have to unmute your, your mic, uh, Pastor Barbara. We don't have to have your video, you can just talk. Okay. Is there anybody else that has something they want to ask? There's a lot on, oh, wait, something come through. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, here's a, can you elaborate on mystery being hidden thoughts? <laughs> Something to elaborate on. It's, it's a constant question mark. Um, Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12. We see through a glass darkly. There are some things, and we've got to get this in our mind, because when I get to the mystery of godliness, Here's what you have to understand. There are some things that are too wonderful to be comprehended in this finite mind we have now. So when Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see through a glass darkly. Our Western minds are so analytical, we want to get down to the nitty gritty of everything. And yet we've been following to this back the basics that what God is doing is showing us a pattern. The patterns lead to principles the principles lead to purpose. We have to follow the pattern. 
I just showed you some dichotomy, a pattern tonight. And if you follow those dichotomies throughout scripture, beginning with Adam and Eve, there's a whole dichotomy study of alignment of twos that have been out. So we get to the church in Israel, we see something interesting because God is going to make out of the two one new man. He brings man and woman together so that the two will become one. Notice in Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4, Paul deals with seven ones, which are united. And, and those things become, he, he said the church is a mystery because nobody discovered this. Nobody saw this in the Old Testament. Nobody assumed that God was going, first of all, nobody saw that God was going to become a man and that becoming a man that he was going to have a church. It was a mystery that was hidden from the beginning. There was no prophet that knew this. All they knew was that one was coming. And, and, and so they were so the drama was picking up at the end of the Old Testament that one's coming, one's coming, one's coming. But they had no idea who this one was and that it was going to equate to two comings, which got revealed later. We have another question. So mm -hmm. what is the pattern that is going on now that God is doing? I, I was waiting for somebody to ask that question. And it is very clear what God is doing. And that's why I decided this fall to teach on the book of Revelation, because the revelation of Jesus Christ unfolds. Let me tell you two things. First of all, this is consummation. There is an ending to the gospel message. We move from creation to the fall, to redemption, to everything being consummated together in times. Paul talks about in the last days, perilous times were going to come. Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24 that there were signs to the inside time. And he gives all these signs, wars, rumors of wars, things are happening, the church being ineffective. And, and let me just give you a, a, a preview. In Revelation 18, something happens there that's powerful because in Revelation 18, uh, verse 4, he says, Come out of her, my people. There's some. There's a system that we've got to come out of to prepare for the coming of Christ. And so um, this whole idea, Revelation is done. John does two things. He does this figurative writing, but he's already covered the whole scope of consummation from chapter 1 to chapter 12. Then he goes back. Well, he does it from chapter 1 to chapter 11. Then he goes back in chapter 12 to chapter 22 to start all over again, explain the same thing he explained in chapters one through 11, but in a little more detail. He does what happens in Genesis. In chapter one, we get the story of creation. In chapter two, we get the explanation of the story of creation. So John does the same thing in Revelation. In chapters one through 11, he gets the whole outcome of the end of the world. And then in chapters 12 through 22, he explains what chapters one and 11 explains. Wow. Right, wow. We got another question. Will the different denominations ever come together as one? Not in this lifetime. <laughs> Unfortunately, Jesus prayed a prayer that I wish would become reality. He said in John 17, Father, pray that they may be one, even as we are one. Uh, Paul gives in Ephesians 4, seven ones that must come together. The denominations are there. Remember, the vision, the spirit of the vision is a, is a trick of the devil. 
This is where kingdom comes in. If we don't really restore kingdom and take that kingdom authority, we will never get rid of the division. It is not that there's a diversity of denominations, it's there's a spirit of division that has divided the body of Christ and kept us from being effective. That's our problem. We have another question. <laughs> Trying to get clarity of Israel and the church and the promise given to Abraham's singular seed. I am too, and I'm not being funny or sarcastic. But you have to just keep reading Galatians 3 over and over and over again, because that's where he points it out. The seed, I'll just give you where I was getting at. The seed is really Jesus Christ. What had been interpreted as that the seeds was the nation of Israel. But Abraham, when God said, I'm going to give the promise to your seed, what Paul is talking about is the seed was Jesus Christ. And that coming through, what Matthew does it shows how Jesus comes through 14 generations. He gave all these generations that Jesus comes through, his seed gets down to everything we counted to, not your son or your grandchildren or your great children, but God was preparing a ground for a seed of a new reality of him being who he is, which we call the God-man. That becomes powerful. Anybody else have any other questions? We are coming to that time. Amen. Let me put up while they're getting themselves together. So at this time, listen, let's not forget to take care of our teacher. The workman is worthy of his hire. Let's be a blessing, plant a seed. You don't, if you don't have it tonight, you can also seed it, write down the information you got this week. What comes to your mind as you um, chew the curd and think about what we've been taught tonight, feel impressed to send a seed, feel free. It's right there on the screen, online giving, PayPal, you got Cash App, Cash App, dollar sign, Dennis Golfin. Let's be a blessing to the man of God. I decided to keep these classes free, freely as you receive, freely you give. Um, and we're going to keep them going. I'm going to keep these series of Bible studies. The other Bible studies that, well, other classes that we do there that are costing because they're more academic. These are, are free studies that we can come in. It's my gift back to the body of Christ that we do this. We don't ask for anything specific. We just ask that you be a blessing so that we can keep designing and doing these things and bringing them together. Now, you may have to go back and look at some of the other back to basics to get a pattern of what I'm doing because I am building a pattern. There is a, there, I'm going somewhere. These are just not random classes. They all interconnect because I'm taking us somewhere, but it's going to take us till December to get to where I'm but tonight I had planned to get somewhere to now I got to. I, I realized tonight why I didn't get there because I needed to do what I did. There was probably about six or seven slides I didn't get to that we'll start with the next time and then move on from there if we can. But I, I want to get us to this mystery of godliness um, and get us to understand where we are. Well, we, we really 
just tapped into the mystery of the church. And so with the, with the circle I have there between um, Israel, the church, and the kingdom, this whole underlying concept of kingdom does not nullify the church or Israel. It's just that there's a spiritual reality to the kingdom and there's a physical reality to the kingdom. They, they don't get the answers. There are two books that give the answer to this kingdom message. That is the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation. Hebrews talks about it quite a bit near the end of the book, this whole concept of coming to Mount Zion, the holy city of God, as opposed to coming to uh, Jerusalem. And then when we get to the key, in Revelation, you got to get really the key and what you need to do. And I'm going to share with you the preview as we get, because you really cannot understand the book of Revelation until you get some Old Testament imagery within your mind, because there's some powerful things that are there that John is talking about in terms of imagery. He's using Old Testament prophetic imagery to explain where he's going. So good Jewish scholars would understand his imagery which was four people of his day that led all to so to futuristic problems of where we're going in this time. Every century, by the way, has thought they were gonna be the century that Christ was gonna come. And that was gonna be the consummation of the age. But what the spirit tells us is that we don't know the day or the hour when the son of man is gonna appear. 